On this episode of China Unscripted, decades of American leaders got China wrong, while Wall Street and big business pushed for globalization. And now, it's coming back to bite us. Is it too late to turn the tide? Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganesta. And joining us today is Clyde Prestowitz, author of The World Turned Upside Down, America, China, and the Struggle for Global Leadership. Thanks for joining us today, Clyde. My pleasure. So in 2001, China joined the World Trade Organization. And uh, we were all told at the time that this would help liberalize China. How could so many very smart people be so very wrong? Well, that is uh, an excellent question. Uh, And it's because they wanted to be. Basically, they wanted to be. Uh, Let me say it a little bit different way. Uh, Our foreign policy elite, beginning, I would say, with Kissinger and Nixon, beginning in 72, Nixon goes to China. Uh, And uh, continuing through uh, Reagan and H.W. Bush and and Clinton and W. and so forth, Uh, it decided in its own head that China uh, wanted to become uh, what what the Bob Zellick called a responsible stakeholder in the global uh, liberal rules-based order, as Bob described it. Uh, They thought China wanted to become that? Yeah. Uh, So the the argument was, let let me take it back actually to 1982. So I was a leader of the first U.S. trade mission to China in 1982. This followed Kissinger and Nixon go in 72, 78, 79. Carter normalizes relations with China. Uh, We put our embassy, we move our embassy from Taipei to Beijing. Uh, Chinese take the Security Council seat uh, in the UN, um, and we are beginning to develop then on that uh, a new relationship with China. And the idea is that we can really develop uh, an economic relationship with China that will, because Deng Xiaoping has now said, let's let a few people get rich, uh, and that was interpreted in the West as, hey, they're going to go for a market economy. Uh, and we can help them do that. We know how to get rich. Uh, and we had a lot of business people who desperately wanted to help China get rich because they thought that would also enable them to be rich. Uh, and Dung had thrown off the fetters of Mao and, and the Cultural Revolution, uh, put Mao's wife in jail and so forth. So really, so 1982, I am in the Commerce Department. I'm uh, Assistant Secretary of Commerce. And the White House tells me, Clyde, take a bunch of business guys to China and let's start developing this relationship, uh, a trade relationship. And a trade relationship, will in, a free trade will inevitably lead to political liberalization. Uh, and so that's what we did. There were, there were moments along the way. The biggest moment was uh, uh, 1989, Tenement Square. Think about this for a minute. From, let's say, 82 until 89, uh, we had been developing uh, a more complete relationship with China. We'd been urging our businessmen to go to China, invest in China. uh, And we had seen, of course, uh, the beginning of real economic growth in China and certainly a much more liberal uh, political environment than existed under Mao. 
And so it looked like things were going our way. And then suddenly Tenement Square comes along and Dung orders in the tanks and shoots, nobody really knows, the 700 to maybe 10,000 kids. I don't know. Uh, now, George H.W. Bush is present at, president at that time. I had worked on his staff. Uh, I knew him and, and I admired him. Uh, but he made a decision that I, I think we all have to scratch our heads about. Uh, Dung sends in the tanks, and the very next day, Bush sends uh, Brett Scowcroft, his national security advisor, to Beijing immediately. And what's the message? The message is, don't worry, I'll keep, I, George, will keep the boats from rocking too much. Uh, and and Scowcroft adds to Dung, at this moment, George H.W. Bush is your best friend in the world. Wow. Now, at about that same time, uh, Bob Galvin was then the chairman of Motorola. Uh, I was an advisor to Motorola. I knew Bob very, very well. And Bob and I had lunch. Uh, and Bob said to me, Clyde, I'm going to go to China, and I'm going to meet with this guy, Deng Xiaoping, and I'm going to set up Motorola China. And I'm going to use the fact that Deng uh, has had kind of a setback here because of the tanks. I'm going to use that to uh, obtain a deal under which Motorola China will be completely independent. I'll own all of it. Uh, there won't be any partners or state-owned uh, uh, organizations in Motorola China. And you know, and, and obviously Bob thought he could do that because he thought Dung was in a, a weak negotiating position. And so, sure enough, Bob goes to China, and that's exactly what he did. He got a deal from Dung to have 100% uh, Motorola-owned operation in China. But what did Dung get? Motorola at that time was the leading U.S. maker of, uh, of uh, cell phones. It was a leading semiconductor manufacturer in the U.S. And so what did Dung get? He got a factory. He got technology. He got uh, a step up uh, in his uh, plan to develop the Chinese economy. Uh, and that was a... And, and then... Bill Clinton runs for president in 1992. And what was his, remember his slogan, 1992, Clinton said, we will not tolerate dictators from Baghdad to, Bang, to, to Beijing. But shortly after he was elected, he changed. And he started talking about positive engagement. Uh, and while he was talking about positive engagement, uh, U.S. business leaders, people like Hank Greenberg at AIG, Fred Smith at uh, FedEx, uh, Steve Jobs at, at Apple, all these business guys were suddenly running to China uh, to see how they could effectively what they wanted. To, they wanted to do business in China, but certainly people like, like Jobs wanted to transfer essentially their manufacturing to China. They wanted to get rid of their labor unions. They wanted to get rid of the environmental conditions or rules in the U.S., uh, and they want cheap labor. And so they were looking to move their production to China. Uh, and at the same time, U.S.-China experts, the, you know, the people who go to school, who study Chinese, become fluent in Chinese, and then they work at the Council on Foreign Relations or they work at Brookings or, or um, you know, some other think tank institute as China experts. These people kept writing that uh, China was liberalizing, that uh, there was a strong feeling that 
the um, inevitably, as you open open markets and you have competitive capital-based markets, you enter into free trade agreements, this inevitably leads to political liberalization. And in fact, George W. Bush made the comment later on that free trade carries the seeds of democracy with it. Uh, so, so there was a, a, just a, a concatenation of business, uh, 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 policy, and academic expertise all centering on this notion that helping China develop its economy and China was going to become more capitalistic and it was therefore going to become more liberal politically. And this was this occurred despite despite Tiananmen Square, number one. And then shortly after Tiananmen Square, 1992, China decided to develop its own uh, uh, geo-satellite uh, uh, positioning uh, system. We had GPS. The Europeans have uh, their own system. Both of those systems were available to China, but China said, nope, we're not going to use the American system. We're not going to use the European system. We're going to build our own. This is 1992. Then in 1997, we we have, the, of course, the Internet is beginning to be uh, a significant thing. Uh, and, um, and China announces that it's going to build a great firewall. 1997. So keep that in mind. And what China means by a great firewall is they're going to they're going to censor the Internet. They're going to split the Chinese Internet away from the World Wide Web. In doing so, they're not going to allow people like Google or Amazon uh, or uh, Microsoft to operate uh, in China uh, and certainly not to have their hands on anything like uh, the Internet. Faced with this, Bill Clinton says he's told that China wants to uh, try to control the Internet. And Bill Clinton says, ha, ha, ha. Let them try. It'd be like trying to nail jello to a wall. Uh, now, think about that. Today we hear about decoupling, and, and frequently when you hear the decoupling discussion in the U.S., uh, the, the tone of the discussion is that it's America that is trying to decouple from China. No, no, this is 1997, and China is splitting the World Wide Web into two different uh, Internet systems. China is decoupling in 1997, and, and we deny that it's happened. We de- Clinton says, ah, let them try. Then we go to bring them into the World Trade Organization, uh, and those negotiations take place in the late 1990s. Eventually, China joins in 2001 uh, when Bush W. Is, is president, but the negotiation was largely a Clinton negotiation. By that time, so by 1998, 1999, the U.S. trade deficit with China was getting pretty big. It was about $80 billion, uh, and, and it had been growing you know, pretty substantially. And Charlene Barshevsky, who was the U.S. trade representative, Mickey Cantor, her, her predecessor, they argued that by bringing China into the WTO and by giving China most favored nation treatment, that that would reduce the U.S. trade deficit. And the argument was that we have already our tariffs, U.S. tariffs are very low. China has high tariffs. So in any deal, we're not going to reduce tariffs because we, they're already de- reduced. Uh, and so to be the Chinese, 
who will have to make the tariff reductions. And as they do that, then America's exports to China will will uh, you know suddenly uh, fly, and our trade deficit will be reduced. Do you think that they actually believe that, or do you think there was just corporate pressure from from U.S. corporations? Combination of both. Uh, certainly, there was corporate pressure, but but the interesting thing here is is the is the you know the discipline of economics. Um, so they would get econometric models, and they would run these models, and the model would show that, gee, if we do this deal with China, uh, U.S. exports are going to soar, and the deficit is going to be reduced. Now, a problem with models is that they are very, very much subject to garbage in, garbage out. Uh, the assumptions of the econometric model are critical. Uh, and typically, the assumptions in these models were unrealistic. Uh, and, but it was a good way to sell the deal to Congress. You go up, on, up to the Congress, you're the U.S. trade rep, and you say, yeah, I just have a model here from the Brookings Institute or the Peterson Institute, and their model says blah, blah, blah. Uh, and so we have to do this deal. Not only will it be good for China, it'll be good for us. Um, and And so, you know, we did the deal. And then... Five years later, the trade deficit had risen by about tenfold. Uh, and, and, you know, and then if you follow progressively, so China joins the WTO in, 19, in, in 2001. Then 2005, China publishes a five-year plan, which begins to um, target for Chinese development industries like aviation and semiconductors. Uh, and then you get to 2015, China announces the Made in China 2025 program. And this is essentially uh, a uh, laundry list of all of the leading edge technologies uh, that China says are going to be made in China by 2025. Uh, So let's say from the period of when uh, Nixon goes to China, 72, from 72 until, let's say, 20. March 1, 2018, I'll come back to that date, but uh, let's say March 1, 20, until that time, uh, the entire American foreign policy community uh, was married to this notion that the Soviet Union had collapsed. Frank Fukuyama wrote the book, We're at the End of History. From here on out, it's all going to be uh, democratic politics and market economics. And then so the the elite was married to that. And if you contested that, and believe me, I tried, but if you contested that, you just, you could not get published in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. I mean, no significant publication would publish you because you're obviously so stupid and wrong. So even though, like, you had the Tiananmen Square massacre, you had uh, the the start of the satellite program, the Great Firewall of China, the, the persecution of Falun Gong, even though there were all these warning signs, you just couldn't get that message out. Couldn't get it out, and and I mean, when when uh, Obama became pre- in the Obama presidency, I remember so clearly. Um, oh, must have been it was in his second term, so must have been 2013, 2014, something like that. Uh, I was invited to the White House to meet with the president and you know some of the top cabinet people. Um, and I was invited along with four or five other 
uh, people like me, you know, think tank people, policy people. In that meeting, um, it, you know, I, I tried to get across the idea that, uh, that we were actually uh, losing our leadership in a lot of high-tech industries. I particularly picked the semiconductor industry. That's one that I've had a lot of experience in. Uh, and I was just, it was like I was uh, from outer space. Uh, and, you know, my colleagues uh, who were uh, also invited to meet with the president were, in, you know, I, they and I were on different planets. Uh, they embraced and continuing the notion that, hey, uh, you know, we're the leader and, and we're always going to lead in high tech because we're so creative and so entrepreneurial. Uh, and, and China's going to be catching up. And it's good because that'll make China more democratic. Well, if I can interrupt for just a moment, I'm curious quickly how you came to a different conclusion than everybody else. Uh, okay, good question. Um, so uh, let me go back a little bit in my own history. Um, I graduated from college in 1963, and um, I got a grant to go out to the East-West Center in Honolulu to study Japanese. Uh, and so I did that. I then went to to uh, Japan, to Tokyo, studied at Keio University, got my master's degree at Keio. Uh, long story short, I wound up spending uh, the 19, part of the 1960s and a significant part of the 1970s in Japan. During the economic miracle. Yeah. Uh, and, and I spent that time, part of that time I was a student, but part of that time I was actually in business. I actually ran the uh, Japanese subsidiary of an American company. Uh, I worked for a Swiss consulting company in Japan. So, so, you know, I was watching the Japanese miracle occur. I was participating in the Japanese miracle in the 1970s. Uh, and, and then um, in the, uh, uh, 1981, um, I was asked by Malcolm Baldridge, who was then Secretary of Commerce, to uh, join the Commerce Department uh, to help with negotiations with Ch with Japan. Now, you go back to 1981, you may remember that the Japanese auto industry was, was eating Detroit whole, uh, that the Japanese semiconductor industry was beginning to eat Silicon Valley whole, that the Japanese had already conquered much of the steel industry, all the textile industry, all of the consumer electronics industry, uh, and that our trade negotiators with Japan had been negotiating a series of so-called voluntary export agreements under which Japan would agree to limit to a certain number its exports. So, in fact, in 1981, we, had, we signed a deal on voluntary exports uh, limitations with Japan on autos. Uh, and Japan was Japanese auto exports. The Japanese said, we volunteer that we will not export more than, I forget the number, but around 2 million automobiles to the U.S. market. Uh, so Baldrige asked me to join the Commerce Department. I did, and I became the lead U.S. negotiator with Japan and also with, with uh, Korea. And, and then I was the leader of the first U.S. trade mission to China uh, in 82. But I had this experience with Japan throughout the 1980s as the key U.S. negotiator on all kinds of trade issues. And um, 
And I, what I realized after a while was that there was a repetitive dynamic to our discussion. And here's the way it would go. Uh, we'd be sitting here in Washington and some American industry, let's say the semiconductor industry, <clears throat> would uh, come and, and they would say to us, uh, hey, you know, we're getting killed by these Japanese. They're not playing fair. They're dumping uh, products in the American market. They're stealing our technology. And, and, you know, can you, the Commerce Department, help us out? And so we, the Commerce Department and the trade representative, would go to Japan and we would say to the Japanese, hey, guys, you know, you got to stop doing this. You're cheating and, and you're not playing fair, square. And the Japanese would say, oh, what are you talking about, man? I, the problem is that we're not, we're playing fair and square. Hey, you know what? We have lower tariffs than you do. And they did. We have fewer non, fewer uh, uh, border uh, protection measures than you do. And that was true. Uh, so technically, if you looked at the U.S. and the Japanese economy, technically the Japanese economy was more open, quote, unquote, than the U.S. economy. And so they would say, hey, look, our economy is more open than your economy. The problem is your businessmen and, and your businessmen, come on, they don't try hard enough. Their delivery is always late. They're, they put the steering wheel on the wrong side of the car. I mean, come on. You know? And it didn't matter. It could be semiconductors. It could be cars. It could be almonds. It didn't matter. That was the debate. And I went through that. You know, After going through that about 100 times, I scratched my head and I said, there's something wrong here. So here's the deal. We would go to the Japanese and we'd say, okay, what kind of a uh, of a political system do you have? And the Japanese would say, well, we're a democracy, just like you. Oh, okay, we know how that works. And and your economy. Oh, well, we're a market, a capitalist market economy. Oh, okay, we know how that works, just like us. Uh, and But if you sat down and if you had had experience in the Japanese economy and saw how it actually worked and experience in Japanese politics and saw how it actually worked, yeah, okay, it was a democracy, but only one party had ruled Japan uh, at that point. Only one party had ruled Japan, you know, for the past 50 years. Uh, and you said, okay, it's a, it's a market economy, but it's a market economy in which 70% uh, of the shares on the Tokyo Exchange never trade uh, because of cross-shareholdings between the major corporations. So you have the Mitsubishi Group. So Mitsubishi Autos, its bank is Mitsubishi Bank. And uh, it's, it's, you know, the bank and the other Mitsubishi entities are all linked together by cross-shareholdings. And you have a very powerful bureaucracy. So uh, I remember meeting with Akio Morita, the founder of Sony, at one point. And we were having a discussion about semiconductor industry. Uh, and Morita says to me, uh, MITI, the Ministry of International Trade and Industry, must give them strong guidance. So there's a term in Japanese called gyosei shido, which means administrative guidance. And effectively what it means is that the Secretary of uh, Industry or Finance or whatever it is calls up uh, a CEO and tells them what to do. And the CEO does it. And why does the CEO pay attention to this bureaucratic uh, figure because the bureaucratic figure is powerful, and the bureaucratic figure can cause the CEO just a uh, a, 
an eternity of pain informally. Uh, and, and, and the CEO is not going to be able to take him to court uh, because it's all done behind uh, the scenes and, and informally. Uh, and so effectively, okay, you know, theoretically, the Japanese economy is a capitalist market economy. But effectively, it is a significantly government-guided economy. That was more true in the 1980s than it is today. Um, and, then, and then just to add to that, uh, you know, if in the United States uh, you're a mother or a dad uh, and you have a really brilliant kid, uh, and, and what do you want for the future of that child? You know, do you want your child to become let's say, the Undersecretary of Commerce uh, in, in Washington? Uh, or would you rather have your child, let's say, be the CEO of Intel? Well, in the U.S., CEO of Intel every time, right? But not in Japan. Not in Japan. No, no. If you're in Japan in those days, you wanted your son to be a high-ranking official. That's where the prestige was. That's where the power was. Uh, and only secondary guys, only second raiders uh, would, you know, go into Toyota or Mitsubishi or something like that. I can really see why you're seeing yeah, it reflections very, of China. It's, it's, it sounds it, very similar. Well, it's interesting because in America, it's like Wall Street controls Washington. Yes, And in right. Japan, it's the polar opposite. The polar opposite, exactly. Uh, and so, you know, I, I had I had this experience in Japan. And then on top of that, my wife is Chinese. And she comes from a large Chinese family. Uh, her uncle, at one point, was the uh, biggest uh, uh, builder in, in the state of Hawaii. Uh, and, uh, and, I had, and I saw, you know, how a Chinese tycoon ran his company and, and dealt with his people. And so I had some insight that most people don't have into, you know, how China uh, and East Asian economies and, and companies work. And what I and as I got more involved with China, what I quickly realized was that uh, China in many respects was Japan all over again, except in a way even more so. Uh, and, and but before getting to China, let's just ma- mention the tigers because Japan had uh, its economic miracle, was formally announced in 1964. And, you know, the 1970s were kind of the really glory years of the Chinese, of the Japanese economy. But then that they just sitting across the, the water was Korea and the, the Koreans looking at Japan and, you know, the Koreans know that anything the Japanese can do, they, the Koreans can do better. And so Park Chung-hee is sitting in Korea they say, holy cow, these Japanese are making semiconductors and automobiles and steel. We're going to do the same thing. And so Korea adopts a similar policy to the Japanese. Taiwan, uh, Singapore, they all basically adopt the same kind of export-led, uh, uh, mercantilist uh, economic policies, and they all have miracles. And then China becomes the last tiger or the first dragon. Uh, and while, you know, most of the American analysts are looking at China and, and analyzing it in terms of the, the, the 
American, or let's say the Anglo-American economic model, and they're saying, oh, China is adopting market forces, and oh, China is uh, going to allow private enterprise to be more active, and so they're going to be more like us. But I was watching it, and I was looking at the five-year plans of the Chinese uh, Communist Party and of the government, and and you know, I was talking to Chinese officials, and I realized that uh, they weren't looking at the American model; they were looking at the Japanese model. Uh, and uh, and actually, not only were they imitating the Japanese model, but they were improving upon it, and they could improve upon it because the one place where the bureaucracy had even more power than in Japan was in China. And and so sometimes in Japan, I mean, for example, Honda. Honda was never supposed to happen. The the champions for the Japanese industry, uh, in the auto industry, for the Japanese bureaucracy, were uh, Nissan and Toyota. And Honda was not supposed to make cars. But Honda was clever and uh, and they managed to get into the auto business largely because they had a big market in the U.S. I mean, to this day, Honda sells far more and makes far more cars in the U.S. than it does in Japan. Uh, but the Japanese bureaucracy turned out not to be powerful enough to strangle Honda. But the Chinese bureaucracy could do it. I find it so ironic that considering the anti-Japanese propaganda that the Communist Party loves, that they were so inspired by the Japanese. You're exactly right. Um, Chinese Communist Party loves the anti-Japanese propaganda, but even more, they love Japanese industrial policy. (laughs) (laughs) Those communists love money. Yeah, Yeah. right. (laughs) So earlier you were talking about an important date um, in 2018. March 1st. March 1st, 2018. Right. Okay. So that date, uh, The Economist magazine, now you have to... You guys are aware of this, but your listeners, I mean, The Economist magazine is like is like the Pope of free trade uh, and, and, and Anglo, Anglo-American, you know, capitalist free trade economics. The Economist magazine is the high priest uh, of that religion. And The Economist magazine for years, 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 you know, argued that the Japanese industrial policy was a negative. It was hurting Japan. Japan would do a lot better if they got rid of all these industrial policies. Uh, And if people like Prestowitz suggested that America should do something like Japan, that was just protectionism. That was evil, old protectionism, like like the protectionism that caused the Great Depression and World War II. Um, So March 1... 2018, the cover story of The Economist magazine says the West made the wrong bet on China. So here's The Economist of all people waking up and saying, oh, my gosh, we got it wrong. Oh, we made the wrong bet. The Chinese are not going to become more market-oriented. They're not becoming more liberal politically. In fact, they're becoming less liberal politically. Um, that was a huge thing. And then that was quickly followed by uh, Kurt Campbell, who had been Assistant Secretary of State under Obama. He's now back. He's now the China czar at the National Security Council under Biden. But in 2018, uh, Kurt was in some kind of a consulting company. Uh, and he quickly followed the economist, 
with an article in Foreign Affairs, uh, basically saying what the economist was saying, elaborating it a little bit more. But but that date marks a huge shift and the beginning of a reconsideration of China and reorientation of U.S. policy towards China. But what was happening was it, was, it just became clear. I mean, China had come out with Made in China 2025 in 2015. Xi Jinping obviously, clearly, even, even all the apologists could not argue that Xi Jinping was was going in a more democratic, more market-oriented direction. From my perspective, what I see is the U.S. and the free world, uh, in the EU and Japan as well, taking what I think is a more realistic understanding of China and a more realistic approach to China. But what I see now is uh, increasingly, what I think will increasingly become a bitter, bitter fight and debate internally. And, and a good way to capture it is uh, the, in the last two days, the comments of George Soros uh, and the statements of Larry Fink. So George Soros, we know, is the major Wall Street uh, investment manager and Larry Fink, uh, the head of BlackRock, the biggest uh, hedge fund, who has just announced he's going to put a billion dollars into the Chinese financial markets. And, and Soros made the statement that the Fink was uh, you know, not only doing the wrong thing uh, for his client. He, Soros is saying, hey, Fink is going to lose money for his clients by making this kind of investment in, in a market that clearly is not <clears throat> a, a, an adequately policed and, and uh, administered financial market in China. Uh, and Fake has responded by saying that he's looking out for his clients and he has to make money for his clients and uh, that China's a big growing economy and everything's going to be great. Um, but, but fundamentally, what I see is George Soros like him or love him, he knows the communists. He, he escaped from Hungary to get away from the communists. So he knows the communists. Larry Fink hasn't got a clue. Uh, uh, and, um, and I see that conflict becoming greater and greater. I mean, for example, Apple uh, is gearing up to introduce this new iPhone. And of course, those will all be made in China. Now, uh, there's another Apple in China, or used to be. Uh, it's called the Apple Daily. Uh, it until a couple of days ago, it was the only independent Chinese language newspaper in Hong Kong. Uh, it was founded by Jimmy Lai, and Jimmy was an outspoken advocate of democracy and free speech. When Beijing decided to crack down on Hong Kong, their first target was the Apple Daily and Jimmy Lai. So today, Jimmy Lai is in jail. He's 72 years old. And yesterday, Apple Daily closed down completely. Its funds had been frozen by the, China, by the Hong Kong government. Uh, it was unable to proceed, and so it's dead. Now, so here's Apple uh, uh, of iPhone. Uh, and it, everything it makes, it makes in China. Everything it sells, it makes in China. And... Um, a few years ago, 2015, 
the FBI in the U.S., in order to solve a case, needed to open an Apple iPhone. And they went to Apple and they said, help us open this phone so we can get the data we need to prosecute this case. And Apple, absolutely not. No, sir, Bob. We, know, we protect the uh, uh, privacy of our, of our customers. FBI took it to court. It never finished in court. But the point is, Apple refused to cooperate with the FBI. Okay. Fast forward to 2019. Uh, and in 2019, kids are, are demonstrating in Hong Kong. And Apple has an app in its app store called Hong Kong Map Live. So if you have this app, you can look at Hong Kong Live in real time. And if you're the kids, you can see where the police are. So that allows you to go demonstrate where the police are not. And the app, this app was driving the Hong Kong police crazy. And it was really driving Xi Jinping and, and the big guys in Beijing crazy. Uh, and so the China Daily, the mouthpiece of the Chinese Communist Party, begins writing, you know, really torrid uh, editorials against this this app. And within a day, the app is out of the app store. Uh, Tim Cook yanks it out of the app store. Well, I mean, I think it's it's maybe less ideological than it is practical because Apple realized that, you know, standing up to the FBI wouldn't actually get them in trouble in terms of the U.S. government couldn't really do anything. And it would even help Apple's reputation in the eyes of most Americans, whereas the economic calculus in China is just simply different because they know that they're completely at the mercy of that of the Communist Party. Well, absolutely. So my point is this, uh, two points. One is that we call Apple an American company. And it is American in the sense that technically it's uh, incorporated in an American state, probably Delaware, but maybe California. But Apple is much more under the thumb of Beijing than it is of Washington. Apple's not afraid of Joe Biden. It's not afraid of Washington. It can, it can stiff the FBI. It can't stiff Zhang Nanhai. Uh, and then add to that that here's Jimmy Lai. He's going to die in jail. Now, how many iPhones are worth Jimmy Lai's life? Tim Cook, I'd like Tim Cook to tell me. You know, well, if I sell one iPhone, no, that, that's not enough to pay for Jimmy Lai's life. A hundred million, is that enough? I mean, there's a fundamental moral element here that I think is going to increasingly bite as, uh, as we go down the, you know, continuing relationship with with China. Well, it's interesting that you framed uh, Apple as essentially a Chinese company, because uh, in the uh, editorial uh, George Soros wrote, he, he makes the point that uh, what BlackRock is doing is not just going to cause investors to lose money, but it's also a national security threat yes. for the United States. Yes, yes. So China's rise has not just served to, you know, mask their liberal uh, intent. It's not just a matter of like getting communist officials rich and maybe persecuting Chinese people. It's, it's a real threat to the United States. Well, to, free, to freedom. It's a real threat mm -hmm. to the EU, to Japan, any free country. The, the economic relationship with China is a threat. Um, you know, probably the best example of it right now is Australia. You know, Australia really is 
you know, China's its best customer. Uh, the Aussies don't threaten China in any way. Uh, but the prime minister had the temerity to call for an open uh, investigation into the origins of COVID. Well, the Chinese, the last thing the Chinese want. And so China has responded by Australia ships shrimp, lobsters to China. Well, now they're dying on the dock because the Chinese are not unloading the shrimps. Australia ships wine to China, except now it doesn't because the Chinese have stopped accepting the wine. Coal, iron. China has slapped, is slapping Australia all over the, the lot uh, by, they know China, Australia is significantly dependent on exports to China. And so China is using that power to coerce the Aussies to shut up uh, and, and be good boys. Uh, and, um, you know, th- this is a hallmark of how Chinese, uh, how communist organizations operate. And it's certainly a hallmark of how the Chinese communist system operates. Uh, if I look at the business roundtable, uh, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, uh, the U.S.-China Business Com- Council, I look at the CEOs and the companies that are involved in those organizations, uh, they are essentially agents of Beijing. Officials in Beijing will call in their guys in China and essentially send, you know, tell them, this is what we need you to say to the U.S. Congress and to the White House. And they'll go say it. Uh, and um, what I would, you know, what really rubs me the wrong way is a, gu- a guy like Tim Cook, when he goes up, or Tom Donahue, but he used to be the, the president of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And Tom, every time Tom gave a speech, he would describe himself as the voice of American business. And he would go up on the, on the Hill in Congress to testify. And every time he testified, he would introduce himself as the voice of American business. Nonsense. Tom Donahue was the voice of Beijing. Uh, and the same is true of the Roundtable and of the U.S.-China Business Council. Wall Street, Hank Paulson, Larry Fink, Steve Schwartzman, all these guys on Wall Street, they're, in the, they're, they're tools of the Chinese. The Chinese own them. Do you think people like Tom Donahue and Larry Fink knew how much they were towing the party line? Or do you think that they they just genuinely believe that they were representing the business interests of American corporations that wanted to make money in China? I think that a combination of they wanted to make money in China, they had been they, – they themselves are ignorant pretty much of China and of the history and, and modus operandi of the Chinese Communist Party. They're told by – you know, by a wide variety of experts, they're told that, hey, China's becoming a market, uh, uh, open market, capitalist economy. Uh, and uh, and they want to believe it because if they don't believe it, then it's hard for them to make the money that they want to make. So they want to believe that. And they're, they have a lot of advice uh, along the lines telling them, yeah, they should believe it. So it seems like in 2021, we can no longer operate under this disproved notion that if we if we do free trade with China, it, it will liberalize and it will make the U.S. money. It's, it's been proven at this point that China is getting less liberal and it's killing the free world. So how, how can people still operate under that old uh, 
Kissinger policy? So it's, it's increasingly difficult. Uh, but the, the way the, the discussion uh, you know, has trended is that, oh, golly, yeah, maybe we made the wrong bet, uh, as the economist said. But holy cow, uh, decoupling now is really going to be expensive. I mean, we got billions of dollars invested over there. Uh, we're importing billions of dollars worth of goods. American consumers are getting cheap shirts and ties and whatever. Uh, and oh my God, how can we? How can we really decouple? I mean, maybe we can decouple a little bit on really high tech items. Uh, but so, so that the debate, the struggle now really is. Uh, and that's why I bring up this issue of how many iPhones is Jimmy Lai's life worth? Because it's really a struggle now between the cost, the financial cost of adopting a very different kind of policy and relationship uh, and uh, the long-term, let's say, security of the U.S., of, free, of the free world, uh, of maintaining the, the, the moral uh, uh, guideposts of the free world. It's, it's, it's in that, that tug of war there. Uh, and um, it's, it's going to be, incre- I think it's going to be increasingly difficult for people like Think uh, to maintain that, you know, they're just, uh, they're just being good businessmen and investing in a, in a market economy. I think it's going to be increasingly difficult. But there's like this, you kind of bring up the the sunk cost fallacy, like we're already invested, right? right? It's it's like, you know, it's like you, you, you go to a movie and you're you're halfway through and it's, you know, Mike and Dave need wedding dates and this is a horrible movie and why am I even here? It was a mistake to come here, but I already paid for the ticket. I got yeah, my popcorn. Yeah. I might as well just watch yeah. the rest of the movie, right, even yeah. though yeah. it's going to make me feel worse at the end. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of like yeah. we're sitting in on that movie, but- with China for 20 years. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And and let me just add a, a, a dollop to that. Um, in, Intel, as you probably know, has a new CEO, Pat Gelsinger. And so Pat is really wrestling with this issue right now. So let's say you're Pat Gelsinger. And, you know, you're, a ma- you're one of the three major semiconductor producers in the world. Uh, but China is a big market for you. And if you're going to do what you have to do to stay competitive, you're going to have to spend uh, really big bucks on R&D and on capital investment over the next 10 to 15 years. Maybe a third of your global sales are in China. And so if you lose the third, that third of your global sales, how are you going to get the money that make the earnings that that will enable you to get the money to make the investments you have to make. Uh, And that's a very real, you know, uh, uh, problem face that that these guys are facing. And that that raises what I think is the absolutely crucial question. So Biden has come up with this $1.5 trillion infrastructure program to feed some money into the semiconductor industry, the U.S. solar panel industry, the point is that in order for 
free world industry uh, and business to leave the theater, uh, uh, there's going to need to be uh, an outside uh, government incentive. The, the incentive can be, on the one hand, the government can put up money to offset some of the losses. And on the other hand, uh, you know, the government has sticks. It has carrots and it has sticks. Uh, and, um, you know, you have to keep in mind that all of these high-tech companies, their technology, much of it, came from the government. Uh, and so I think, you know, using its technology leverage on the one hand and its financial potential on the other hand, the U.S. government, but not just the U.S. government, the EU governments, the Japanese government are going to have to orchestrate their own industrial policy. Uh, and, and I think this is a very critical point. For a long time, our economists have uh, promoted uh, the coupling with China, and our economists have done that on the grounds that, hey, it's trade, uh, and uh, we want to get products made at the cheapest possible cost so that our consumers can have inexpensive uh, products to buy. And hey, you know, if if China can make semiconductors cheaper than in America, well, so be it. Then uh, let Intel go to China and make semiconductors. That's uh, that's the economist's argument. But what the economists miss is that hey, those semiconductors are critical to national security. China is threatening to invade Taiwan. China is militarizing the South China Sea. We need to maintain semiconductor superiority in order to to respond to that technological threat, that very real technological threat, where you know our economists have a huge blind spot, uh, and, and that, that blind spot is going to have to get enlightened uh, in order to enable our policymakers to apply the kinds of sticks and carrots that are necessary. Do you think that the Biden administration or you know Japan, the EU, the US, do you think that there is the political will to do what you're advising? Well, I would say I'm, I'm encouraged um, so far. Uh, I um, Biden has come up with this 1.5 trillion. In my view, it's not enough, but hey, it's to step in the right direction. Uh, Biden has not backed off. And very interestingly, a lot of business people thought that Biden would would uh, remove the tariffs that Trump imposed. He hasn't done that. Um, and I think that if I look at the Europeans, uh, the Europeans did not sign the investment treaty that they were negotiating with with China. Japanese are uh, becoming much, much more concerned about Taiwan. We're not going to have a, a political race in Japan. One of the key candidates, a guy named Kono Taro, uh, is a very hard, I mean, a, you know, very much an American ally uh, in, in this, these kinds of questions. So I'm encouraged, but I've been in this game a long time, uh, and I have great respect for the the ability of the Chinese Communist Party uh, to organize, to play the long game, uh, to take advantage of uh, instances when it has coercive power. Uh, and, and I know that democratic governments uh, you know, operate on a shorter time frame uh, and are more subject to outside influence. So um, 
what I feel is that I'm encouraged by what Biden and, and the rest of the major free world players have been doing. Uh, and I, I just hope that we kind of continue moving in that direction. Uh, and, and I mean, interestingly, the Chinese themselves, uh, sometimes they, they make mistakes. Uh, and so she now uh, has just wiped out uh, a big piece of the Chinese education industry. She is now telling families, you can't send your kids to, uh, to the special study school to get into the top universities. No, no, no more SAT uh, uh, promoters uh, in China. And, um, and so, so, you know, she has, is suddenly looking a little bit like Mao. Uh, and uh, I don't know if you noticed it or not, but, you know, he gave the 100th anniversary party speech. And if you looked at the scene in Tiananmen Square, uh, she stood directly over the portrait of Mao. And he dressed in a Mao suit. Normally she wears Western. But that day he dressed Mao. And, uh, you know, Mao had his little red book. She is, has got Xi Jinping thought. Uh, so there are a lot of interesting things happening in China which indicate that, you know, there are potentially uh, stumbles that the Chinese Communist Party can make as well. Yeah, I was wondering about the recent moves that they've made in the market to obviously discouraging some Chinese companies from, you know, IPOing in the U.S. and bringing their money overseas anymore, wanting to open uh, an exchange in Beijing um, and kind of rocking the market with this whole talk of common prosperity, essentially, like, you know, companies going to have to redistribute your wealth, you know, through the party to to other better ways to use the money. Is that actually spooking Wall Street? Because then, you know, BlackRock still comes out and says, we got to triple our investments in China. Yeah. Uh, well, I, you know, if, if assuming that for sake of argument, if she and the party continue down the road that they uh, seem to be on at the moment, um, I, I think ultimately that's bad for Larry Fink. He's, he's not going to be able to uh, maintain uh, the, the you know, strategy that, that he has adopted. If I'm Tim Cook and I'm looking at Jack Ma of Alibaba, and I'm saying, holy catfish, Jack Ma's Chinese. He's got connections. And they just stripped him, basically. What can they do to me? So I don't know how Tim is reacting, but if it were me, I'd be thinking hard about somehow diversifying and, and decoupling uh, in some way. Well, so I guess this is the big question then. Is there a way the U.S. can decouple from China? Is there a way to get U.S. businesses out of China and maybe ideally even back to the U.S.? Yeah, there absolutely is. Uh, and it's actually not that hard. It wouldn't be that difficult or that costly, but it will require a big change in mindset. So, you know, on the one hand, yeah, we, we, we have American industry has substantial investment in China. But, you know, hey, we, we had substantial investment in Germany before World War II, and somehow we managed to fight a war. Um, I'm not going to suggest that we're going fully in that direction with China, but my point is that these comparisons are always relative. Um, and I think that what we very much need to do in the U.S. is actually to study, you know, the industrial policy kind of thinking that 
Japan and the Tigers and now China have adopted. Uh, and so I've been looking at the semiconductor industry recently. I have a background in the industry. Uh, so semiconductors are uh, a product that is that requires little labor, almost no labor. Now, the labor cost in a chip is in the order of 1% or 2% of the total cost. Uh, and, and so if you're an economist and you're thinking about uh, a country like the United States, which, uh, which has expensive labor, but which has a lot of capital, a country like the U.S. would be expected to be producing capital-intensive and technology-intensive products. That's what we're supposed to be good at. And yet, if you look at the record, in 1991, about a third of all of the semiconductors produced in the world were produced in the U.S. Today, it's about 13%. And you scratch your head, you say, wait a minute, that's supposed to be what we're good at. How is it that we're losing market share? And it, it can't be labor cost. So what is it? So uh, BCG actually has, Boston Consulting Group has done a study recently of the cost of uh, of uh, building uh, a what uh, a factory. The the in the semiconductor industry they call factories fabs, fabrication uh, locations. So the so today, uh, just to give you an example, back in 1981 when I first got into the game, a fab in Silicon Valley you could probably buy it for maybe 50 million dollars. Today you're talking at 12, 13 billion uh, for a single fat. You look at, okay, uh, it shouldn't cost a lot more to build a fab in the US than it does in South Korea or Japan or Taiwan or China. But actually, BCG found that building a fab in South Korea is significantly less expensive than building one in the US. And same is true also in Taiwan. How can that be? Well, one reason is because these governments uh, have programs under which they can effectively uh, give away land. So, I mean, to build a fab, you got to have a lot of land. Somebody has to pay for the land. Well, if you get a government grant to pay for the land, that reduces your cost. Uh, $12 billion you need to sink into equipment and, and construction. But hey, uh, you know, if a government is willing to put up three or four billion dollars, that helps. Singapore has thing has a thing called the Economic Development Board (EDB), uh, and um, I was working with a company that makes a, a component for producing semiconductors uh, in Silicon Valley, and and the Koreans were targeting that product. They're beginning to. Uh, dramatically increased their exports into the U.S. market. So the CEO of that company came to me and he said, what can I do about these Koreans? And I said, well, you know, let's let's go to Washington. Let's talk to the trade rep. Let's talk to the Secretary of Commerce, see if we can get them to look into anti-dumping or other uh, uh, legal methods that we might use. Well, at the same time, Singapore's Economic Development Board was sending officials to uh to Silicon Valley to meet with the CEO of this company. And they said, hey, you know, we know the Koreans are after you. Uh, and why don't you move your, your uh, production to Singapore? 
Uh, we can help you undercut the Koreans. Well, how can you do that? Well, we can give you the land free, no taxes for 25 years, utilities at half cost. Oh, uh, yeah, we, how much does your plant cost? $5 billion. We could put up a billion dollars. So the Irish Development Board, the economic development, Singapore Economic Development Board, Chinese Economic Development, com- governments all over the world have techniques and money available to effectively subsidize development of key industries. Uh, the U.S. has not done that yet, but we could do it. And that's, I think, the direction that it's going to have to go. Why does the U.S. not do it? Well, first of all, because it w- if you did it, it would imply that you have an industrial policy. And the term industrial policy is uh, a curse word in uh, advanced economic circles. So you don't want to use the term industrial policy if you're studying for a PhD at Harvard, for example, in, in economics. Uh, it's just a bad word. And actually, it's a bad word with CEOs, too. But CEOs like to think that they control their companies. And industrial policy means, oh, the government is going to be in my, in my game. And I don't like the government. Um, and then there's a third element, which is really emotional and kind of peculiarly American. But Americans hate government. Uh, you know, a sure laugh line. Go, go someplace and give a speech. A sure laugh line is, I'm Clyde Presswitz. I'm here from the government. I'm here to help. Ha, ha, ha. That'll break down the house every time. Nobody believes the government is here to help. Um, and so there's, an, there's just an inbred, uh, uh, you know, antagonism toward a government industrial policy, government direction. I mean, look, people are not getting vaccinated. They don't want the government to tell them to get vaccinated. Uh, it's the same phenomenon in business as well. Yeah. Of course, the irony is that we do have an industrial policy, which is free trade in, in a way that uh, has completely hollowed out American manufacturing over the last two decades. Absolutely. No, you got it. Uh, I mean, I was thinking, actually, I was thinking about this the other night because um, Tom Friedman had a, had, had a piece in the Times uh, day before yesterday. Maybe you saw it on the editorial page of the Times. And Tom's, Tom was arguing that uh, he's so afraid of where the U.S.-China confrontation is going, it's dangerous, we need to find a way to soften things up. And Tom was arguing that, hey, you know, this whole uh, um, coupling with China has been, okay, a few American manufacturing workers have lost their jobs, but hey, consumers are getting cheap goods and, and uh, exporters are exporting like crazy to China. And it's really been very good, you know, for the U.S. And and I started thinking about it. And I said, well, wait a minute. I'm getting, maybe I get cheaper shirts if I buy shirts that are made in China than I would get if the shirts were made in the U.S. Uh, but that means that that shirt maker, the, that job has to go to China. Now, interestingly, if, if you study economics, the theory of free trade, the theory of free trade assumes that workers don't move. It, it assumes that there's no cross-border flow of workers. Uh, And so if I'm really a free trader, then I should not accept or want uh, those jobs to move to China. And and this, I mean, I'm using Tom's name because he's well known, but he's just representing uh, any, you know, the the majority uh, kind of econometric view 
in the United States and certainly among journalists. Uh, and so globalization, of course, Tom famously says the world is flat. And, and globalization then implies that, hey, you manufacture wherever it's cheap to manufacture and, and you sell where you can and so forth. But what people don't understand is that globalization in many respects is contrary to free trade and, and the benefits that we think we get from free trade. So it's, it's, it's all mixed up. It's a really mixed up argument. Well, so it seems like the American people are sort of stuck between the whims of big governments around the world, as well as the desires of big corporations. Is there anything the people watching this podcast can do to actually be involved to make change? Well, it, it requires uh, it, it, it requires um, a change in uh, the way that our uh, broadly that our policymakers are educated. A, and a critical point is for watchers to understand what you said that as, as American citizens, our future is to a very significant extent being determined not in Washington and not in, 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 you know, in the corporate suites of American corporations, but in Beijing and in Singapore and, and, and by uh, uh, state-owned corporations of other countries. Americans typically are, are concerned about national security. Uh, and Americans typically are willing to pay for weapons and uh, despite their withdrawal from Afghanistan, we still maintain an enormous military establishment around the world. We're willing to pay for security. Uh, what we need to understand is that security is not just a gun. A semiconductor is more important weapon in the security game than a gun. The guns need semiconductors. Uh, and so if you want to maintain your independence and your security, you need to maintain American leadership in semiconductor technology and manufacturing. And to maintain that, you need to match what the other governments are willing to put on the table. Uh, and this is not, you know, it's not rocket science. I mean, go back again to World War II. Uh, you know, in 1940, the American ship industry, shipbuilding industry, made something like 100 ships. And in 1945, it made something like 10,000. Uh, just you have to get your mind concentrated on what the real security question is and then go for that. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. This was really an amazing look at uh, the history and how how much failure there was to kind of understand the real situation. Well, my pleasure. I very much appreciate you having me on the show. Well, I thought that was really interesting to see, to hear from a guy who was kind of there as this whole thing went down. Did you see the train wreck happening in slow motion? I like how he was like, you remember in 1981, and I was like, none of us were born yet. <laughs> or he's like, you remember when Bill Clinton, blah, 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 in 1982 or 1992, and I was like, I still don't even have like a very clear memory of that. I, I mean, I, I don't think any of us were really paying a lot of attention to China. Hey, policy. I was I was a very active seven year old <laughs> watching Nick News uh -huh. with Linda Ellerby, and I I was getting all my propaganda. 
you know, what's funny about his whole comparison with Japan is that, you know, who else had this whole like, you know, thing where he saw China and Japan as doing essentially the same thing. Oh, I know the answer to this. Who? <laughs> Should I bring this? It was a a once popular billionaire in New York. Uh, a real estate billionaire, in fact. Are you talking? Trump. Oh. Like uh, when he was running for president, somebody dug up this interview had done with like Time Magazine or something in the 80s. And he was oh, essentially yeah. complaining about Japanese uh, you know, economic policy and saying a lot of the same things that he would later say about China. And that was kind of taken as like, oh, this is this is proof that he's like xenophobic. He's just doing the same things to criticize actually, foreigners. W- when I read it, I realized that he was actually serious about putting tariffs on China because he had been on this. Like had he's, the same belief been on it for, for like 30, 30 years. years. Right. So yeah. we actually wrote an episode pretty early on, like right after Trump won, more or less, that said, Yes, Trump is going to put tariffs on China, and we were right. And we were right because partially because of that interview. Because you know, obviously, if he's been like on something for thirty years, it's a long, it's a long time to be kind of focused on that particular issue. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's why we knew Joe Biden would bail out Amtrak because he's been on Amtrak for thirty years. He's been riding that train for ages. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. But yeah, I'm really curious to see what the Biden administration will ultimately do with those tariffs. There's still no concrete U.S.-China trade policy under the Biden administration. Well, I hope his policy is to try to bring manufacturing jobs from China back to the United States. And I think while Trump tried, he was not very successful at getting the jobs. Well, he was partly successful at getting them out of China, but mostly they moved to like other countries, including Vietnam, which is like, you know, Great, it's kind of communist. It's not really like but a- they're communists who hate China. The other communists. Well, it was mixed. Some jobs but, came back to the U.S. Some went through other yeah Southeast Asian. But countries. like the, the the key is if you want to shore up the American economy. And honestly, if you if we can move manufacturing jobs to America, we will solve a whole host of other problems that will fall into place. Right? It'll solve uh, not just you know you'll, you'll have better wages for workers. Uh, you'll have better environmental issues because instead of being made with coal factories in China, which is totally ignoring the you know Paris climate stuff, American manufacturing has to be done with U.S. standard environmental regulations that are actually enforced. Uh, you'll have high-paying jobs, which will support communities, including communities that have been really hollowed out, places like Detroit, where it's full of you know crime and violence, and and when you have jobs, people are less likely to get involved in crime because they're not as desperate. It'll also reduce the drug problem quite a bit because when people are, you know, depressed and unemployed, you know, to a degree, that's also correlated with, with you know, the opioid epidemic. And it just this, this whole host of other things, you know, better, uh, more revenue for the government because of a better tax base. Just like, like, does the dominoes will all fall into place or wait, the dominoes come up. <laughs> Whatever the, the the metaphor is, that's the metaphor that I want to use. Well, the, the thing is that you, it takes a lot of political will to get there, though, because you, you're going to fight the corporations every step of the way. Well, nothing says strong will like President Joe Biden. Well, I mean, uh-huh. I was actually trying to make a point there, but OK. And I sure. wrecked it. <laughs> but Like dominoes standing up. <laughs> I was like, it was so good. To authoritarianism. And- there we go. Yeah. All right. You know what, Shelly? You, you're making a point, and I want to let you continue. 
Well, just that, you know, his, uh, you know, Clyde's point about how American shipbuilding went from 100 ships to 10,000 ships, that was true, but also what happened was a war. So, yes. like, you'd have to really, like, I mean, I don't know, maybe COVID could be a drastic enough thing to also re-onshore manufacturing. It because, should have been. Because Hello. Of, because of all of the shortages we're having now and that that are going to continue for, like, the next probably six months to a year. Oh, years. I think it's going to be years. I, I think and we I, haven't even seen how big like, the problem's you know, going to be. You know, we, we joked when Delta first came out about all the new variants that are going to come. But like, it's not a joke. It's just this past week, you know, we learned about the Mu variant and like, it's not going to stop. Well, yeah. And then you have issues like you know, people are saying, oh, it's not going to get back to normal before, you know, Chinese New Year 2022, probably for the Chinese factories, at least given if there's not another shutdown. Right. And then that affects ports and shipping containers all over the world. It's kind of insane. And there's, also, there's nothing we can do because because China's exports are so dependent on that regime's policy. Like they can arbitrarily shut down an entire province, right? And there's nothing American manufacturers can do. They can arbitrarily nationalize an industry like they did in early 2020 for PPE. And they nationalized all the mask manufacturers, even though those manufacturers were foreign companies. Mm -hmm. And they took all the masks. Like, like this is what we're working with. Why does okay. not everybody watch our show? All right. Whoa. I'm, I'm feeling passionate about this. I felt that in the audio peaking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Peaking, the old name for... China's capital. I see you're making a, another metaphor. Really? Like uh, dominoes. Did you see the black swan actually speaking of Tiananmen Square? Yes, that was that was wonderful. An actual black swan in Tiananmen Square. Yeah, uh, that was pretty amazing. And they caught it. They, you know, despite the horrible free press catching it on camera. I don't think it was the free. I think it, it wasn't was the free probably press. Probably just some people, you know. But the point is out. they were able to get the black swan under control. Yes, there we go. That was not. That means nothing. It means nothing. And on that note, thanks for watching China Unscripted. Once again, I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganista. We'll talk to you next time.